0: Hit a rock, come off the motorbike, and I know somehow during this time his shirt got stuck in the chain of the motorbike because they had to cut the shirt off as well. So I think it was seven hours his arm was dislocated for. By the time I got there, I think I was quite shocked more than anything actually as to how bad these injuries were. This is Centre North the car, but one of The child on the
1: breathing breathing okay at the moment. Is it a big company? Blood pressure is not coming up. Very Thank you. Hi, my name is Lana Mitchell from the Royal Flying Doctor Service. This is a podcast about life in the bush, mateship, courage, and the role that the Royal Flying Doctor Service plays in serving rural and remote communities. This is the Flying Doctor Podcast.
0: My name is Kira Dargan from the Royal Flying Doctor Service and I'm an Aboriginal woman of the Rajri Nation. This podcast has been recorded on Ngunnawal land and is being broadcast across all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander nations. We at the Royal Flying Doctor Service want to acknowledge Elders past and present. The RFDS recognises that this is first people's land and always will be.
1: The vast majority of kids in Australia live in a city or regional area and attend a traditional school with anything from a hundred to a thousand other kids on the premises. When you're a kid on a remote station in Australia, that education system is very different, with no local school and education delivered by the school of the air. And that's where a governess often comes into the picture. A governess is employed to help educate and care for kids in rural and remote areas. And they could be supervising any year or age, but tend to be hired when station kids are in primary school. In this episode, we're talking to Eliza Emlin, who's a current RFDS staff member in Broken Hill and has a really interesting background as a governess. Her current role with the RFDS pulls upon her experience, her background and networks as a governess to help families and kids in remote areas. On top of that, this year has been particularly challenging for her husband, who had an accident which he's still recovering from. G'day, Eliza. G'day, Lana. How are you going? I'm Good. Now, you were born and bred in rural Victoria. How did you end up working as a governess?
0: Actually, it's quite funny. I was down at the beach over Christmas with my family, scrolling through Facebook, um, and I was really seeking a change. Anyway, I saw this job for a governess, and I thought, that's perfect. I love kids. I love animals, the two things they really say not to work with, Um <laughs> I love rural life and education, so I applied for a role in Outback New South Wales. I got that job and, yeah, moved up to Broken Hill in the late January. And which year was that? I've been here five years now.
1: Could you explain what the responsibilities of a governess are and what sort of you would do on any given day?
0: Um, so, yeah, responsibility as a gov, well, a govy, we call it as a shorter term, um, is really... for not just supervising the kids through their education, but you do a lot of facilitation as well. So if a child's not completely understanding that unit, we all learn very differently. You could change up those units of education to suit the child. It's not just the schoolroom. I guess you're part of the family. So when you move onto a property, you're part of that family, especially during, well, I moved in during a drought. So you do really um, all hands on deck and help each other out, become... My second family, and I got to participate in a lot of the on farm activity, so yeah, I was very lucky
1: you obviously you're living there, so was it a big culture shock or a big change for you from going from original Victoria to suddenly being in this quite isolated location and living with another family?
0: <laughs> yes, yes, it's a very big shock, like the closest pub was a bit over an hour away, so I was very lucky compared to some of the girls who moved up there, but And we all know the pub can be the centre of a town, especially, yeah, Yeah. where I was, there wasn't a town. There was just a pub with this amazing community around it. Um, I think it shocked my parents probably more than anything. They couldn't understand why I wanted to move to the middle of nowhere as such in the red dirt. Wasn't a lot to look at during a drought. Yes, very big culture shock in that way.
1: Yeah. And tell me how many kids were in that family or still are in that
0: family? Um, So two boys I was teaching and they were in years one and four when I first moved up
1: there. And does the school day, is it similar to what we experience in metro areas or is it a a different schedule with School of the Air?
0: Uh, So they do have scheduled air lessons during the day. So that'll be like once a day, um, a subject, they'll be on the computer screen with their teacher and that's pending if the computer's working because it's on satellite so yeah it was always and there was always some sort of issue with that It's what happens when you live remotely but yeah um, school we tended to start earlier because rural early risers which worked a lot better for us which meant more time in the afternoon for animals and motorbikes yeah Yeah,
1: getting out there and actually living some life. Mm. Were the parents around while you were there or were they out and about on the station during the day?
0: Um, So they'd be out and about but they're always close enough and you have a UHF so if you ever needed you could give them a call. What challenges do
1: govies have when they're out in these remote locations and have the responsibility of educating and caring for kids in uh, very isolated circumstances?
0: Yeah, that's a really good question, Lana. When I came out here originally as a governess, it was observed that majority of these girls, and I say girls because I haven't met a male governess yet, had um, moved up here because they were escaping as such their own struggles. So they had struggled with just that feeling of belonging, anxiety, depression, lots of different comords, I guess. Um, so they've moved up here to escape that. And sometimes back life isn't what you expect. I think um, MacLeod's Daughters has put a bit of a um, foggy picture in our minds. And, look, I love MacLeod's Daughters, but, <laughs> you know, it's not all what it's made out to it's be. Not all roses. No. I think a big struggle is to, as a govvie, Yes, you're part of the family, but I have experienced a lot of people, which is something I didn't experience personally, is when there's a drought on, if you're not from that rural background, it's really hard to understand. It's a lot of stress. The kids become stressed. The parents are stressed. And you feel like sometimes you might be keeping that that family going. And that's a big stress on a lot of these girls who come out here. They're only just 18. They're still, still kids themselves as such. So there's a lot of maturing there and you do notice a lot of the girls who come out here when they're 18 by the end of that first year they're completely different they've just grown mm. into these amazing responsible young women really they're yeah incredible
1: do they find themselves overwhelmed at times and and calling on each other for help or assistance or or just unsure of how to cope with things
0: well that was another big identified issue as such um, these people were struggling on their own they'd go back to their own living quarters and didn't feel like they had anyone to speak to you they could ring mum or friends at home but they didn't understand what they were experiencing so creating a bit of a network with the governesses and working all together provided the opportunity for these girls to have someone to talk to and someone else who might be experiencing the same thing and it can be hard. You're living in somebody's home with their family because that can be quite hard too, not, fe- not knowing where yeah, you belong, yeah. struggling to meet people. So that social isolation because, yeah, your neighbour might be 40 minutes away but they mightn't sort of be your age or you mightn't fit in or it just doesn't work. So giving these people the opportunity to meet and then that's where I was lucky through that role with the RFDS. I could do a bit more focused so I could help and provide more wellbeing-focused tools, show the girls there is somebody here they can talk to. If they come to Broken Hill, call in and have a coffee with me at the wellbeing place. We're all there. We all love to have a cup of coffee or a cup of tea and a chat and it can be informal. It doesn't have to be a formal chat. It's just providing that space to connect. Did you have to do training as a govvy? no. So, to take on this amazing experience, you don't need any experience prior. It's fantastic. I had worked previously with people with a disability, so, and that was as a teacher's aide. So, I sort of had a bit of an understanding of education and how mm-hmm. to facilitate different units. But yeah, no, you don't need any education, only your first aid. That's a Big must.
1: That's a big must. Did you have to call on your first aid training at any point?
0: I was very lucky I didn't, but when I first moved there, I was also, I was really lucky with my employer. They spoke, talked me through where the closest RFDS air strip was, how to access a medicine chest, what to do in an emergency if I couldn't reach them. So I was very lucky like that. Right.
1: So how far away was the property from, let's say, a tertiary hospital?
0: Um, so there was... Oh, we are probably nearly two hours away from a clinic, um, so yeah, smaller hospitals, Small hospitals. Bunch, yeah, in one of the smaller towns, but yeah, about three and a half hours from Broken Hill.
1: Wow, okay. Tell me about your husband, Ben. When did you meet him and end up settling
0: down? Um, So it's quite a funny story. I went home on the school holidays um, while govying, and Ben and I actually met up for lunch. I used to care for his sister, so I knew her well. He sort of worked with my mum um yeah through being a stock agent so we sort of knew each other we hit it off and yeah he ended up moving up here.
1: Ah and so is that when you started to work for the RFDS or yeah when did you make that change?
0: Yeah so it was roughly around the same time I met Ben so I had a lot going on at the time. Okay now
1: earlier this year your birthday was approaching and you had some great news because um you were pregnant with your first child you must have been excited about learning that you're going to be expanding your small family.
0: Yes. No, we're thrilled. So not long left now, only about a month. <laughs> <laughs> Woo, on the home stretch. Yes. <laughs> now, Eliza, I understand
1: that your husband had been some distance away and had been mustering at a station and there was some sort of accident when he was on his way home. Could you tell me about what occurred?
0: Yeah, so um, I was sitting here at home on the couch and it was actually my birthday um, and I was Quite looking forward to a nice quiet birthday at home with my dogs. Um, that's what happens, I guess, when you get a bit older. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, and I got a phone call from the wife of where my partner was working. Um, and as soon as I saw that name go off my phone, I thought something's happened. And I thought, where, where's Ben being flown to? So, yeah, answered. And yeah, she had a bit of a chat with me about that he was okay but he had come off his motorbike. So he had just come back from working and it would have been later in the afternoon, so it would have been right on that dusk timer, which is absolutely beautiful time up there because it's a beautiful red dirt with the rocks and it's, yeah, quite rocky country and it was warm too being February. So it would have been a beautiful warm night and, yeah, he has come off his motorbike. He can't remember a lot about what happened, and I think that's because it happened all so quickly. He Mm. hit a rock, come off the motorbike, and I know somehow during this time his shirt got stuck in the chain of the motorbike because they had to cut the shirt off as well.
1: Wow. So he sort of ended up a bit tangled up with the motorbike.
0: Yeah. Yikes. When, um, yeah, I saw him again. There was, yeah, massive big scrapes along the side of his body, so along that left side. So he's obviously um, skidding across the ground somehow as well with the motorbike on him, which they can be quite heavy. He was then later found by somebody else who was working there at the time and they've put the alert out. And from there then what these communities do up here is amazing. They band together and they got onto the health service in the closest town, which would have been probably 40 minutes away, which isn't too yeah. bad for out here, so quite close as such. So, yeah, he um, got transported up there with their little bush ambulance and they were, he was there for a few hours. So his arm was dislocated. So it actually it remained dislocated until he got to Adelaide. So they flew him out to Adelaide. Mm-hmm. Because they weren't sure if it was a break or if there was any spinal or neck damage as well. So they waited, yeah, until they got him into South Australia practically. So I think it was seven hours his arm was dislocated for. Oh, that's
1: horrible. And how did, so there you are, it's your birthday and you're sitting on the couch and you get this news that your husband's been in this accident How was that news relayed? Were they really worried about him or were they reassuring you and saying, look, he's going to be fine, he's all messed up but he's going to be fine or what were they saying?
0: Yeah, look, and I could tell they were very concerned about him but they were also wanting to reassure me and they were just absolutely beautiful and same with the health service. So they just really wanted to reassure me, make sure I was okay as well receiving that news. But I tend to go into action mode more than anything So I'm sitting there thinking, okay, I've got to go to Adelaide. When can I go? Who's going to feed the dogs? That's how my brain works. And it wasn't until I got there and saw him, because we hardly spoke until I got to Adelaide because he was in with doctors and specialists continuously and also changing his medications. He was in a fair bit of pain. By the time I got there, I think I was quite shocked more than anything, actually, as to how bad these injuries were. Um, just to look at, even they weren't very nice. How did you even get to Adelaide, Eliza? Um, so I drove this. It's about oh, six or seven hours to drive to Adelaide. Wow. So okay.
1: So you, so was it still your birthday? You just got in the car and drove?
0: No, I waited till the next day, just being later at night. It wasn't wasn't worth going down there, and I couldn't do anything at that hour.
1: Right.
0: And I really don't like driving in cities, so that was a big. Big test for me too, trying to find a park at the Royal Adelaide.
1: <laughs> so you get to the Adelaide Royal Adelaide and you go up to see him. What sort of state was he in? Was he conscious?
0: By the time I got there, he was pretty well sorted by the doctors. Um, so they had him on his medication and just a bit of a plan going forward. With the brachial plexus injury, it's quite unlikely to heal very quick. So, yeah, they had a lot of physio and visits planned those sort of things just coming back he was in quite good spirits actually when he saw me and it was more of a get me out of the city let's go home so that was nice so we got takeaway that night we didn't walk very far down that street either because it was very busy for both of us so (laughs) we got takeaway and headed back to broken hill the next day and that took a lot of stops as well because he was so uncomfortable in that car with Mm. an injury you've got to drive really slow and stop all the time to stretch it can be quite a long trip when you've got a patient
1: (laughs) so he had really badly damaged his left arm and that was I guess what you're talking about then is the stretching of that tendon or that that nerve that runs right down the left arm and was he able to feel or grasp or what was he? What were the sensations or the symptoms that he was experiencing?
0: No, so originally um, there was no feeling. Um, he was given some little stretches and that sort of thing to do initially, and then going forward, we were seeing a physio via Zoom from Adelaide. So that was sent us because um, we have got physios here in T- Broken Hill, but being such a small town, we don't have a a lot of access to specialists because they are so busy when they're here. Uh, mm. We then got on to a physio here at the hospital in Broken Hill and she's been fantastic as well. So we've been really, really lucky. We're now, what is it, about eight months in, I suppose, yes, and mm. he can almost grasp with his hand, so not with a lot of confidence but, yes, he's getting there and he just is continuously stretching his hands Um doing his physio and there's some amazing little tricks that the physio comes back with.
1: Does that mean that he's um, been able to work or he's been off work now for months because of his arm and being unable to to feel or grasp or hold?
0: Yeah, so he had been off work for a little while and that was quite stressful as such. Um, ben is not somebody who can sit still so I think that really frustrated him but he's just got this amazing determination And I think too with a baby on the way, that's probably prompted a little bit further. So before coming up here, he was a stock agent in Victoria and he's since gone back to being a stock agent up here. So even Mm. with, I guess, a delayed movement of arm now, he's still able to do his job and he loves it, which is fantastic. He gets out there, Mm. gets to take our kelpies, so just, yeah, it's still out loving life. <laughs> and,
1: and does he have any pain? Is he
0: in pain on a day-to-day basis or is it just the
1: the fact that his arm doesn't function the way it used to function? Yes,
0: yeah, so there was a lot of pain for a long time. Probably in the last month that's actually reduced dramatically. When he starts to get a lot more pain, we know there's more movement coming back. So we look at pain as a good thing sometimes sometimes because mm. we've learnt to identify certain pains mean that the nerves are reconstructing, I suppose, and, yeah, it starts to right. work again.
1: Oh, that's interesting, isn't mm. it? I never thought about it that way. So <laughs> the the pain is really a, a good sign or a good indicator that the healing is happening.
0: Yeah, or we take whatever positives we can. So <laughs> Wow. And how does, how does Ben
1: feel about his adventure and his trip with the RFDS and his... Um, overnight stay
0: at, at the Royal Hospital there in Adelaide? Um, unlike me, he's very short on words. But, um, <laughs> but, yeah, no, he has said before we've sat back and he goes, it is an incredible service. He said, to think I could get from there to Adelaide to get medical help. He said, I can't imagine what it's like in even more remote areas. And we were really lucky yeah, with the treatment, the specialists. And Ben being Ben, always had a laugh. Like He thought it was great that it took, I think, three grown men to put his arm back into place in the Adelaide hospital so he loves those sort of stories so yeah had a bit of a laugh through it all And
1: I presume he's not riding motorbikes at the moment if he's got no no ability to um, hold the handlebars.
0: No, (laughs) hopefully not for a while. (laughs) Right.
1: Okay, well, you're just a few weeks away from welcoming your new baby into the world. Uh, Could you tell me about the work that you've been doing with the Wellbeing Centre there in Broken Hill?
0: Yeah, so I was really lucky. Obviously, I said I moved up here as a governess. Planned to only be up here one year. I fell in love with everything about living up here. And that was, I've always had a bit of a obsession with the red dirt. It wasn't just the red dirt, it was the people, the community, that really old sense of country community where everybody lends a hand. They drop everything if somebody else is in need. And working as a governess, I found a lot of these girls who moved here to the outback were feeling really disconnected and there wasn't a really good network as such. So I worked quite closely with a group of gubbies for a few years, just bringing everybody closer together. From that, the RFDS in Broken Hill had opened this wellbeing place and we went for a tour with some other services and I honestly just fell in love with the whole idea of it. I thought it was this amazing initiative and going forward, I was really lucky to land myself a job there. So I work with governesses as well as School of the Air still, pastoralists, Jim Carner committees there's just there's so many in that bush space so I not only facilitate events but I work with communities and consumers to provide a platform where people find it accessible to seek help with mental health drug and alcohol services and just a lot of reduction of stigma I also work really closely with a program we have called we've got your back we've got your back utilizes these amazing people we have that live on properties and they have their own lived experience with mental health so they use that experience to be a phone a friend as such and yeah they just provide an opportunity for people to ring up someone familiar have a bit of a chat with with a mate and give some low-level intervention and ease these people into the service so that's a partnership with lifeline and it's incredible (laughs) I think it's fantastic
1: wow yeah so do the local communities find that really valuable to be able to just have local peers that they can talk to
0: yeah for sure and another beauty of this program is it's all consumer focused so we've just ran six butchering workshops with the far west local health district and these are days at a property or a small community where this butcher comes out demonstrates butchering skills and we also just talk about mental health well-being taking care of yourself and gives people that opportunity to realize that mental health drug and alcohol services aren't scary you can engage with us we are you know we're relatable as well and we have these chats and just getting our faces out there so it's fantastic and this has been accompanied by the we've got your back champions as we call them as well as um, we've actually got a small motors workshop coming up as well. So a very similar initiative.
1: What's the small motors workshop? Is that working on small motors like lawn mowers and ride-ons and chainsaws and stuff?
0: Yeah, pumps and motorbikes. So this is an idea from one of our We've Got Your Back champions, Richard. I guess it's such a basic skill to have out here, but it also brings people together and it prompts that conversation. Mm. And they've been really well received.
1: So when it comes to mental health in these remote communities, have you experienced yourself personally or within the station that you've worked with or with the people that you've encountered? Have you experienced mental health issues or or run into people in the community that are really struggling with mental health?
0: Yeah. So I moved up here because I was struggling as such with my own mental health. I feel like coming up here really did benefit me. The family I worked for became my second family and I have just been so blessed. But through that is what I guess I've wanted to help other people with because I know what it's like to be at that point and not feel very good about yourself. I've had many instances, and this is in my work hat and without my work hat, where you might be at a gymkhana or a rodeo and somebody does need to have a chat or they're not coping too well or they're worried about a friend Coping with a loss. We do experience a lot of trauma out here in the bush. Mm. So just being that person to rely on. And, yeah, I think we're very lucky people are encouraged to talk a lot more too, which is helping. Yeah.
1: Do you know when I talk to um, people, particularly uh, corporate partners and so forth in city areas, one of the things I try to draw their attention to is the fact that Australia, we talk about mateship Um, and you don't see a lot of mateship as such in city areas, but as soon as you start to get to rural and remote areas, there's this thing where you have to rely on your neighbour. And I'll give you an example because I live on a rural property and if there's a fire here, Mm. then I have to rely on my local fire brigade, which is manned by volunteers or by my neighbours. So there's this reliance on your neighbour. If something goes wrong, they're the first person you call. And so you end up with this very strong kinship or or peer groups that are within your community, which you don't necessarily see when you live in suburbia. So I get really excited when we start talking about developing and building on those peer-to-peer networks, you know, in in remote areas so that people can help each other and and learn that it's totally okay to have a chat and to have a coffee or have a beer and, and just have a good yarn about whatever is on your mind.
0: Oh, and that's exactly right. It's so important and I think too being raised in a rural setting. In Victoria I come up here and I already had that perception and that value for taking care of your neighbours and Mm. up here is exactly the same and I know many a times if things were to happen or I've had an incident even like when Ben got flown out the people that would call on me check in with me to make sure I was okay and not just Ben that was incredible we've just been so lucky very supportive Mm. no we're very blessed (laughs)
1: So what do you love about your job the most?
0: It's really hard. I personally think I have the best job, but everybody says this at the wellbeing place. It's a bit of a joke we all have. I love being able to lead and facilitate these consumer-focused programs. So being able to go out and connect with people, and that's all age groups, that's all demographics because you might be working with kids, you might be working with families, govies, the whole lot, the grandparents sometimes. I just love feeling a part of that community and also when you work for RFDS, you are already valued as part of that community but also as an individual. I know I've been to properties before and I've gone home with many homemade sauces and preserves, which I just think is so special I just, yeah, love being able to get out and about and enjoy this amazing Mm. country that we have. Um, You never Mm. know what you're going to be doing. Some days you might be in Queensland, South Australia, New South Wales. It's just fantastic being able to work with people that I care about as well.
1: Mm. And then as far as challenges or uh, barriers to overcome, what do you find the most challenging with your job?
0: I think... Like anything, funding is probably a big thing, um, especially in that mental health space. And that's just ensuring we're delivering this amazing care and service. So just ensuring we can still keep doing that. I also Mm. find sometimes probably the biggest struggles are weather. So, yes, we've just come out of a drought. But we're now raining, which rain's a great thing, but all our roads close around here. So we find sometimes struggle too because a lot of the time our mental health team take cars instead of the plane just so we can mm. have a lot more time to sit there and have those conversations if needed. We don't want to rush people. Mm. We don't want people to feel like, you know, oh, we've got to get back, we've got to get back. It's just taking our time yeah. and being there for our consumers. So, yeah, when you've got... um rain coming and you know you if that road floods and you won't be able to get through for maybe a week it can be quite hard or vice versa you can't get up there I know sometimes if there is trauma or an incident in the community we will go up in a few cars and provide a response as a team and that's just ensuring mm. that yeah we're there yeah and do
1: you ever find yourself traumatized by what you're having to deal with
0: honestly I think I'm very lucky but I have a very supportive team we work in and we all do supervision so we have to speak to somebody who has I guess an outer view of things and they just are there to provide some clinical support to you to make sure you're okay but I also Mm. think too I love my job and I'm here to help people so that's yeah that's why I get up each day. (laughs) That's fabulous.
1: That's fabulous. Thank you so much for talking to me, Eliza. I wish Ben has a full recovery after his motorbike accident and I wish you both the very best with the imminent arrival of your first baby. We're blessed to have somebody like you on the team. So thank you so much.
0: Thank you very much for your time, Lana.
1: Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share it with family and friends and don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You can also join our new Facebook group called the Flying Doctor Podcast Community where you can chat to other listeners. And please do try out our new podcast hotline. You can call and leave an audio message with questions and feedback on the podcast. The number for the hotline is 02-8405-7928. We look forward to hearing from you. The Flying Doctor Podcast was presented by me, Lana Mitchell, and senior producer is Mandy Cullen.